This is CyberSound, your simplified and fundamentals-focused source for all things cybersecurity, with your hosts, Jason Pufal, Stephen Maresca, and Matt Fusaro. Welcome to CyberSound. I'm your host, Jason Pufal, joined today by Matt Fusaro and Steve Maresca. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. Hey there. Uh, so I don't know that this topic needs tremendous uh, introduction. Uh, I think if we just say we're going to talk about zero trust, uh, that's a buzzword that I think everybody, everybody, certainly everybody's hearing in the cybersecurity space today, right? I mean, it is, it's akin to AI, uh, really, right? <laughs> yep. um, and similar to AI, I think there's a lot of people who say, well, what, what is zero trust? You know, what, what does it actually mean? Why do I need to be doing it? Um, you know, why, why are we even talking about it? Uh, so, I, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is simply try and define a little bit what zero trust is to anchor it to, to anchor it for people right. so they can just start to determine you know what their path forward might be yeah and i think it's important to also recognize that zero trust isn't necessarily a product you can buy right it's almost just a feature of a solution right zero trust is a a new security architecture and new i mean right. this was really around five to ten years ago right hasn't really caught up uh, we, products didn't really catch up to it until recently, right? Where we have the ability to do all these identity and context-aware things now. So and, that's why you're hearing the buzzword all of a sudden. We have the ability to do it now. And to put, you know, to address the elephant in the room, people are thinking about it because people work from home for two years, right? You, yep. you know, they yep. had many incidents caused by loosening, you know, network access and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. That's the type of thing that zero trust, as an architecture, at least has historically been described to address. Right. So, so zero trust network access is what is driving the conversation right now, or ZTNA. You'll probably see that in a lot of marketing material as well. Um, and, and so what does that mean? It, it, right. So you're putting three different things together. Usually when you're talking about network access, you want to know identity, right? We not, we want to make sure that you are the person you say you are when you're connecting to a network, whether it's, inside the network or outside of the network, right? Um, next, you want some context. You know, where are you coming from? Um, what devices are you coming from? Uh, you know, should you be allowed to access these applications, this data, et cetera, wh whatever the uh, scenario is, right? Uh, and then you'll want to do some type of posture checking, right? Is this device safe? So things like making sure certain software is installed, such as endpoint security, um, OS patches, maybe. Uh, you can, there's quite a big list, right? Uh, it really depends on the vendor solution or what you want to evaluate before a person actually comes into a network and interacts with data or applications. Yeah, and the, the truth is that you know many organizations have shifted to this hybrid environment where they have some on-prem resources, they have some cloud resources. Right. The very notion of inside the network or outside the network is far squishier than yep. it used to be. It's uncertain. Yeah, we talk about it all the time, how identity has become the firewall, right? right. You, you no longer have a, a boundary anymore. And this is this is an attempt to solve that problem by, by using those three things I just talked about to uh, identify if that person should be accessing what they're accessing. So the, the models, right? I think you see, you certainly see vendor products the, from the network space. No doubt. Oh, sure. Um, and I'd say you see applications suggesting that they're a zero trust application. And you say naively, you know, as we've moved to more of a 
sort of hybrid environment where people really aren't in the office. Um, how do you deploy some of those network, uh, those network zero trust capabilities? Do they require that traditional VPN? Are there, are there, are there other creative ways that, that, that these are being addressed? I, I think it's my opinion that the, the more network biased zero trust solutions are built for organizations that are still broadly on-prem. Correct. Because yeah, okay. they they are in a transitionary phase between, you know, local offices where they have a boatload of users, a lot of devices and their key data, and a shift to a far more fluid cloud provider SaaS type of environment. So if you're an organization that makes that it meets that type of description, you might be interested in a zero trust networking type of model. Yeah, and you know, on the other side of that too is uh organizations that have moved to the cloud, they, they want to make sure that the way you're accessing those things isn't on, you know, the Wi-Fi at Starbucks, right? They want to make sure that you're, um, if you're on that network, that you have a secure tunnel to do, to access those things, encrypt your traffic so that if there is things in plain text for some reason or session information, that stuff is protected from the endpoint all the way to the application. Common challenges in that environment. Uh, at least th th things that I encounter regularly include uh, provisioning software from, you know, a traditional model where endpoints contact an on-prem server that's behind a firewall, not accessible to the world, to the other model where they're roaming like in the cafe, at home. Yeah. You know, that that's a, that's a huge hurdle for some organizations. Yeah, I think identifying what groups of people should be accessing things becomes more difficult. Right. I, that's always been a challenge always. for all organizations, but it's, it's at the core of this type of deployment. So you you have to have a really good idea of who should have access to what and under what circumstances now as well. Right. That's that uh, that context and device posture policy that you're going to have to deploy in order for this to be effective. So it's, it's a lot of discovering you know, what types of policies should I be adhering to at an organizational level and then from a security level, et cetera. It's going to be a decent amount of work to get to where you want to be. But in, in, in large part, a lot of these solutions do require, uh, on the network side, either tunneling back to a central right. location for policy management uh, or maybe being physically present in a central location. If you're doing a network-based zero-trust solution, uh, ultimately, you have to apply a policy somewhere. Uh, so you're yep. going to move traffic somehow to a central location. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, that's kind of the allure of a lot of these solutions is that they dynamically set up these tunnels for you, right? So... Application A, application B, they each have their own tunnels, their own sessions. They they go through a central point, or you know, I, I believe the technical term for it is a trust broker that uh, manages the connections and manages uh, saying who can do what. Um, but all that is kind of abstracted away from the administrators and the users, so that they could just access applications in a secure manner. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so how about uh, maybe the flip side, which is we're going to move away from that network-based model and maybe try to, to deploy technologies that protect local resources, a workstation for an individual, right? Because there's definitely software out there that would say, you know, we're going to, we're going to uh, whitelist applications, deny everything by default, uh, do a whole variety of application-based controls. And, and I think that, you know, oftentimes they'll call themselves sort of zero trust solutions. Uh, yep. You know, is, is, is that a model that, is legitimate uh, that some companies might need to look at. Yeah, I think it's totally fair to say that you're you're zero trust at that point. That's part of the model, right? Uh, always assuming compromise and always assuming that uh, 
you shouldn't have access to it until someone says you should, right? I think the distinction is that the historical model applied security policy at the edges, at the boundaries. Right. Zero trust is setting policy at some central location, likely cloud accessible, and then applying it as close as utterly possible to where that data is used or where the endpoint is actually executing. That that That's the key distinction. I think that it, it means a lot when talking about uh, allow listing applications, for example, right. because it's a, it's a scenario where it comes down to the actual running of a tool. Whereas, you know, in a different environment, it might be more applied with, you know, who is allowed to install the application or what applications are permitted to be installed. It's a different model entirely. Yeah, it, this whole model helps from an, uh, an attack standpoint in that you can't just abuse an identity so easily anymore, right? You have to be in the right place, accessing the right applications, sometimes at the right times, et cetera. So all that put together is now granting you access or denying you access instead of, well, I'm this user and it might be a compromised user at that point. I can get access to whatever data that person had access to. Not, not true anymore, right? So it makes it more difficult for an attacker. It, I think, Steve, you, you made a good point at the beginning, which is your, why, why is there so much discussion about this? And, and certainly, I think the last couple of years have had a, a, a big effect on that, right? That transition of, of people out of the office, because the concept isn't that new. Uh, you know, the, without a doubt, the idea of zero trust or you know, whitelisting things that are permissible, you know, sort of restricting or blacklisting everything else has been around for a long time, but it's really difficult to pull back from your users access that they're used to having. And, and I think that's one of the challenges for implementation, uh, you know, telling people, well, yeah, you used to be able to do this, but now you can't. And their workflows or their, there's your general, you know, sort of business practices you know, don't necessarily support that that well. You know, they're not easy to do. And it positions, you know, a lot of times your security professionals your IT, or your IT folks as kind of the bad guys implementing these. It's, it's interesting in some respects, because I think it does, to, to your point in a broader sense, it turns it on its head for organizations that are not necessarily, they don't have a heavy capital flow at the moment. Their revenues, you know, down. Um, they're at their next hardware refresh cycle, potentially. 2020 till now certainly emphasized personally owned devices. That was the case prior to 2020 for newer organizations that aren't, you know, necessarily flush and building out hundreds of workstations. That, that, that I think, is part of this. It enables zero trust and related architectural decisions, enable leaner operation to some degree, because your users can bring whatever they prefer. Your users can bring whatever they can afford. And as long as they have an internet connection, they're able to function. Right. That That's the, the appeal. Uh, there are plenty of our customers that are uh, coping a lot with office space constraints. Um, leases are uh, higher. Uh, landlords are imposing higher restrictions. Physical management of people, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. in that raw sense, it is something that is also a major driver. And if you don't have to pay for the endpoint hardware anymore, and yeah, even better. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're saving money in general, but it causes a shift in the way the policy is applied because it means that you know, it's not owned. Well, but, but I want to be careful. So it's not just 
bring your own device and everything's secure. It's bring your own device that then perhaps has software in it or right. policy applied so that you can validate that, right. right, that it's secure. It's it's just it's a shift towards imposing agents, right, imposing uh -huh. posture checks. Because if, if you can't do those things, then that device is not allowed to access. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so you can easily turn this into a, a, a benefit to employees because there are, frankly, there's a lot of people who say, I've already got a laptop. I'm content to use that. Can you just let me use this? So I don't have to carry, you know, multiple of these things around or try to separate as much as, as we do. Like, you know, some of these things are real benefits to people uh, being able to have fewer devices in some cases, if you can validate, of course, that the device is secured and, you know, and their teenager isn't running, you know, Steam or who, like, who knows what else on these things. Right? Yeah. And you, you would only ever in the past have one chance to determine if that laptop uh, is good or not, right? It does, is it configured properly? Does it have endpoint security on it? And then you send them on their way. Now you can continuously evaluate uh, at access time, at, at every access that those things are in place. Okay. Um, any reason that people shouldn't be thinking about zero trust? Yeah, we've, there's certainly plenty of chatter about it. It seems reasonable, but... Um, I'd say if you don't have a good handle on, you know, who should be accessing what, uh, you don't have a good inventory on your applications and um, access restrictions, policies, et cetera, that stuff has to be in place before you, you can even move into a zero trust uh, type of architecture. You know, otherwise you'll be, you'll have the technology in there. You just won't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> so actually I got, a, I got a comment about that, which is a lot of the products that you see will suggest that you run them in you know, what they'll call a learning mode for some period of time to try right. to try to address exactly what you just described, mm -hmm. which is, Hey, we don't know anything about what people are running, uh, run these things open, but in learning mode for a few weeks or a month or whatever it is, get your inventory. And then once you think you're reasonably comfortable with that, you know, lock it all down and deal with the few problems that come out of it. I mean, that, that, that's a model a lot of these folks recommend. It, it, it is, um, but, and, and there's nothing wrong with approaching it that way, right? There's another potentially alternative model um, or more complementary model, I suppose, which is data centric. If, you, if, businesses are, if businesses are in a regulated environment, they know that they have to meet minimum protection guarantees for consumer data, for private information, things of that variety. If, if a company can build a robust data inventory to understand where their, their truly sensitive information resides and the users that need to interact with it when, it, this is a much easier conversation. Because rather than, uh, I, think, I don't know who said it a moment ago, lock it all down. You don't have to lock it all down if somebody doesn't have the data. Fair. Yeah. It makes it a far more pleasant user experience for uh, you know, the end users that don't require that type of robust security um, and potentially cheaper from a licensing standpoint overall. So right. it might be an interesting conversation if we went down the path of how many people actually have a robust data inventory. Nobody that's, does. Right. And, and <laughs> yeah. that's the challenge, right? But yeah. but that's okay. But that's um, a trade-off, right? right. It's a trade-off. If, if you don't have it, then you're probably going to be restricting people. That don't or or yeah. understand that it might be more expensive up front, but you can right. reduce costs by gaining that visibility over right. time. And that's why everybody's building that idea of that learning opportunity in there, right? Because frankly, the, all of the vendors know that it is a percent of businesses out there that really have understand where their data is or, or you know, what it is, it's, whether they're regulated or not, right? Just a reality. Right. But. Yeah. And even with the, the learning capabilities of a lot of those things, one thing that I personally don't think you'll ever get any benefit on is the 
the identity piece, right? If you have a poorly constructed identity system or you're sharing accounts, um, it's it's going to be really tough to implement something like this. Uh, from, from a zero trust of applications, that's fine. But uh, when you're talking about things that require identity to be part of the, the, uh, the solution, then yeah, you're going to have to get that correct first. Yeah, that, uh, that's totally reasonable. Okay. Um, is there, I mean, I feel like we talked about, you know, so the network, I guess, you know, I guess the, the network space for zero trust, you know, probably that application space for zero trust. Uh, there's a lot of vendors out there. There, there. There's a lot of approaches really. So you know, explore the space based on the way that your, your business is constructed today, the way your employers are you know, coming to the office or not, right? There's a variety of ways that you can look at this. Um, I mean, I feel like we'd all recommend, though, that that people do explore uh, products in the space and the and the viability of their business moving that direction, right? Because it, it's difficult. It, it's really difficult to to protect people in our in our traditional sort of network fashion. Things are absolutely moving and shifting, and people need to pay attention to that. I, I think just in, in you know a passing thought for me, the key foundational technologies that are critical. It, it, like if you don't have these in place, you're not ready for zero trust. You need multi-factor authentication. You need some sort of client provisioning and deprovisioning that's cloud-based or at least cloud-capable. Um, you need identity federation. That takes a lot of different uh, forms, but it means yep. synchronizing your identities in an externally usable way from potentially on-prem to Azure, to Google, to third-party services so that you can work with cloud apps. And make sure the third parties you're working with actually support this too. Yeah, there's there's still third parties out there that won't authenticate against your directories. Uh, look elsewhere, in my opinion. Right. I'm mentioning these at this point just because it, Zero Trust is a great tra target for organizational trajectory. But if you're not at those earlier parts, if you don't have those technologies in place, uh, you're just not ready to, to move toward that direction yet. And it needs to be part of the strategy. Okay. Um I feel like it's a good overview. I mean, that was, that was the goal of this. You know, to just define what zero trust is a little bit. And I think try to take a little bit of that confusion away from the space or maybe, you know, educate a bit uh, what options are that are out there. Uh, certainly, we recommend people looking at it. Um, and as always, you know, if, if people want to have a more in-depth discussion uh, about the, the nuance that is zero trust, we're happy to have that. Uh, reach out to us at Vancord on LinkedIn. Uh, we can continue the conversation from there. Um, as always, we hope you got some value out of this. It got you thinking a little bit, and we appreciate you listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. Feel free to get in touch at Vancord on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Vancord Security. And remember, stay vigilant, stay resilient. This has been CyberSound.